Section 18 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marissa Sheldon. Antonia by Georges Sand. Translated by Georges Burnham Eves. Chapter 4, Part 5. Julie, who at other times had been much distressed concerning her situation, had reached that stage of lassitude which takes the place of courage. Her philosophy surprised and irritated Marcel. Deuce take me,' he whispered to Julien's mother. "'One would say that she asks nothing better now than to be turned into the street.' Was that, in truth, Madame d'Estrelle's secret thought? Did she say to herself that, being poor and abandoned by her husband's family— she no longer owed so much consideration to the name she bore, and that she could disappear from the world's stage to live as she chose and marry according to her inclination? Yes and no. At times she dreamed again that dream of a happiness hitherto unknown, which had come to her like a fascinating vision in Julien's studio. At other times she became the Comtesse d'Estrelle once more, and asked herself in dismay how she could break with all her surroundings and her habits, and whether she could endure blame and contempt after having been so loudly praised and so respected up to that day by a limited but select circle of persons highly considered in society. It is well known that period was marked by a violent and determined reaction in certain aristocratic circles against the invasion of the democracy, Perhaps no other period in history presents such strange contrasts. On the one hand, public opinion, queen of the new world, proclaimed the doctrines of equality, contempt for social distinctions, the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, and Diderot. On the other, the ruling powers, terrified by a progress which they dared not oppose, attempted a tardy resistance which was destined to hurl them into the abyss, but to one whose horizon was narrow, to whom the morrow was not revealed, that resistance assumed formidable proportions, and a weak and gentle woman like Madame d'Estrelles was certain to be alarmed by it. Like all of her caste, she fancied that she could read the destiny of France in the conduct of the court, and there were times when the king, in dire dismay, tried to resuscitate the monarchy of Louis the Fourteenth, distressing and vain efforts which— However, when looked at from a certain point of view, seemed serious enough to irritate the people, and to increase the arrogance of the privileged classes. The court and city had acclaimed Voltaire's triumph. On the morrow of that triumph, the clergy refused him a tomb. Mirabeau had written a masterpiece against the arbitrary use of lettres de cachet. The king had said of Beaumarchais, if his play, The Marriage of Figaro, is acted, we may as well destroy the Bastille. The third estate grew in enlightenment, in ambition, in real worth. The court re-established privileges in the army as well as among the clergy, and decided, which Cardinal de Richelieu would never have dared to do, that in order to be a military officer or a prelate, an applicant must prove four generations of noble blood. The American Constitution had just proclaimed the principles of Jean-Jacques' social contract. Washington and Lafayette were dreaming of the enfranchisement of the slaves. The French ministry granted additional facilities to the slave trade. 
the lower clergy became more democratic from day to day, the Sorbonne tried to pick a quarrel with Buffon, and the upper clergy demanded a new law to repress the art of writing. Public opinion was aroused against capital punishment, the preliminary torture was still in use. The queen had protected Beaumarchais. Reynal was forced to go into exile. These attempts at reaction in the midst of the onward rush of the age found an echo in the religious coteries, and the greater nobility, generally speaking, abraded those of its members who had allowed themselves to be fascinated by the seductions of the new philosophy. In the conservative salons, the king and queen were overwhelmed with maledictions and sarcasm when they seemed inclined to abandon the theory of the royal good pleasure. The aristocrats clung to that theory. They believed that everything was safe when they added a stone to the powerless dam erected to stem the revolutionary spirit. And yet, no one suspected the swift motion of the flood, nor the imminence of the inundation. Everything was translated into bitter satire, ballads and caricatures. They pretended to despise the danger to the point of laughing pityingly at it. Those persons who were of Julie's immediate circle were of the same mild and timid disposition to which her own mild timidity naturally inclined her. But outside of that little circle, where extravagance in any form was frowned upon, she felt the pressure of a large and more formidable circle, that of the Comte d'Estrelle's family, an arrogant family, irritated by her dumb resistance to absolute opinions, and again, outside of that dreaded circle, which she carefully avoided, there was a still more powerful and threatening one, that of the Marquis d'Estrelle's second wife. That circle, composed exclusively of bigots, opposed to all progress, bitterly contemptuous of philosophers, openly hostile to the omnipotent Voltaire himself, permeated with all the prejudices of birth, fiercely tenacious of its alleged right, was to Julie a subject of terror, puerile, perhaps, but profound and increasing. The Marchioness was well known to be a covetous, evil-minded, dishonorable woman, and we have seen that the Baron d'Ancourt, despite her own retrograde ideas, spoke of her as well as of her environment with great aversion. Julie was very slightly acquainted with her and strove to believe that she was sincere in her piety, but she was afraid of her, and, when she questioned herself concerning the state of dread and depression in which she was living, she saw before her the disgusting specter of that gaunt person with the greenish eye and pitiless tongue. At such times, from very excess of terror, she tried to apologize for her when she spoke of her, or to impose silence on those of her friends who ventured to call her a harpy or a bird of evil omen. Naturally, poor Julie abhorred the opinions of the Marchioness and her circle. But she had not had enough experience. She did not sufficiently appreciate the general tendency of her time to realize the utter puerility of the persecution she would have had to undergo if she had resolved to live in accordance with the dictates of her heart and her conscience. In that cage of prejudice, she was like a bird which thinks that the world has formed itself into a cage about him, and which no longer understands the breath of the wind among the leaves and the flight of other birds through space. There may be happy people, she said to herself, but how far away they are, and how can I join them? 
in like manner on the eve of a terrible revolution the prisoners of the past wept over their chains and believed that they were riveted upon them for all eternity nevertheless julie the greater part of the time forgot this whole matter of external facts to lose herself in vague contemplations and in secret preoccupations of a new sort we shall soon see what the subject of them was and how great difficulty that generous but timid heart had in coming to terms with itself a fortnight had passed since the disaster to the antonia and madame d'estrelle had neither seen nor heard of julien she might have believed that he had never existed and that their two interviews were a dream madame thierry had not set foot in the garden and while julie surprised at her continued absence sent to inquire for her the answer was that she was a little indisposed nothing alarming but forced to keep her room marcel when she questioned him evaded her questions confirmed the statement as to his aunt's slight indisposition but went into no details julie dared not insist she divined that her neighbor was determined to break off every sort of relation every pretext for communication even indirect between her and julien at last one morning madame thierry reappeared when julie least expected her in reply to julie's reserved and timid questions she said effusively my dear countess you must forgive me for a bad dream i had which has vanished now i judged too hastily i was foolishly alarmed and i frightened you with my chimeras i thought that my son had the presumption to love you i was so sure of it that it has taken this past fortnight to disabuse me of the idea so forget what i said to you and give back to my poor child the esteem which he has never ceased to deserve he does not raise his eyes or his thoughts to you he venerates you as he ought and if you should need someone to die for you he would grasp the opportunity but there is no romantic passion in his devotion simply fervent and heartfelt gratitude he has sworn to me that it is so i doubted his word at first but i was wrong i have watched him i have done better than that i have played the spy for a fortnight and now i am reassured he eats he sleeps he talks he goes in and out and works cheerily in a word he is not in love he does not try to see you he speaks of you with tranquil admiration he does not seem to desire an opportunity to attract your eyes nor will he ever seek it forgive my folly and love me as before julie accepted this perfectly sincere declaration of madame thierry with gracious satisfaction they talked of something else and remained together an hour then they parted congratulating each other on having no further subject of discomfort and on being able to renew their relations without agitation or danger to any one how did it happen that when she was alone once more julie was overwhelmed by an inexplicable depression she sought the cause to no purpose and vented her spleen on the next visitors who came her old friend madame de Morget seemed intolerably loquacious the old duc de quesnoy as dull and tiresome as a blacksmith's hammer madame la présidente brossel prudish and hypocritical the abbe there was always an abbe in every private circle in those days conceited and insipid and when camille came to dress her hair at the usual hour she pettishly dismissed her saying what is the use 
Then she recalled her, and, impelled by a sudden caprice, asked her if the usual period for semi-mourning had not expired within three days. "'Why, yes, madame,' said Camille, "'it is all over. And madame la comtesse does very wrong not to stop wearing it. If she continues to wear it, it will have a very bad effect.' "'How so, Camille?' "'People will say that madame is prolonging her grief for economy, to wear out her grey gowns.' "'That is most excellent reasoning, my dear, and I bow to it. Bring me a pink dress at once.' pink no madame it is too soon for that people will say that madame wore mourning reluctantly and that she changed her mind with her dress madame should wear a pretty dress of royal blue with white flowers very good but haven't all my dresses gone out of style in the two years i have been in mourning no madame for i have looked after them i have cut the sleeves over and changed the trimming on the waist with bows of white satin and a lace headdress madame will be as stylish as possible but why make me beautiful camille when i do not expect anybody has madame said that she was not at home no but you remind me that i do not wish to receive any visitors camille looked at her mistress in surprise she did not understand she thought it was an attack of vapours and began to arrange her as the phrase went in those days afraid to break the silence julie depressed and distraught allowed herself to be dressed and when her maid had retired carrying away the grey dresses which became her property she looked at herself from head to foot in a long mirror she was fascinatingly dressed and as lovely as an angel that is why as her heart continued to ask what is the use she hid her face in her hands and began to cry like a child end of section 18